It is a tragedy for people like myself, brought up and living through a period of unrest and violence which all national struggles produce, to explain actions which then seemed necessary and right. What is the truth? Is there a danger that memory will play tricks? It makes you think about the difference between history and memory. Archives provokes emotional responses and they're able to challenge big narratives, like a national narrative that's been transformed, politicized, all the things you want, but family narratives as well. We need those archives, not just in Ireland, but everywhere. And we need those archives in order to try and come to some approximation of an understanding of who we are. Uh, we're joined by Nuala O'Connor, the director of Keepers of the Flame. Uh, it's currently on limited release in Irish cinemas, and uh, from what I understand, it will be broadcast on RTE at some point. That's right, uh, Jonathan. It, we haven't got a date yet, but I think it will be sometime towards the end of spring, say April kind of time, end April. Could you tell us uh, what the documentary is about and uh, why you were drawn to this subject? Um, I was My attention was drawn to the subject by Dermot Ferreter, the historian who, with whom I'd worked on a television series called The Limits of Liberty. And we finished that series um, in 2009 and um, it was about the story of the... Um, it was the history of Ireland since the establishment of the free state and the distribution of power and the centralisation of power in the in the state um, since independence. And Dermot drew my attention to the fact that there was this massive archive. Um, it sounds very dry. There were pension applications um, from people, um, dependents, wounded people and families of um, participants in the rising the War of Independence and later on in the Civil War. And it's a massive, massive archive of 85,000 applications and a huge number of files. I think there was up to, um, you know, three times that number of actual files. Um, and so it's a first-hand account written in people's own words about what they did in those times because they needed to give an account of their um, activities in order to be eligible for the pension. So um, many of them had never spoken about those events for, because they were very traumatic. And um, when the files were then, when, they, when this archive was opened up to historians sometime around 29, 2010, um, the, um, it, it was the first time they had seen the light of day since the files had been established, since the pension legislation had been established in, in 1924. Um, so it's, it's a phenomenal, it's a unique archive, in fact. Um, and uh, then um, the move to digitise it, make it accessible online so anybody can literally look up anybody's file, um, was, it was a monumental undertaking and it gives us a kind of a unique perspective on that generation of Irish people and their families who had lived through those times. Uh, so there was around uh, 85,000 who applied for the pensions. Uh, That's right. That. And how, how many of them were rewarded pensions for their service? About 16,000. So the vast majority of them didn't get them. 
they didn't get the pensions and the pensions were also very small um, so it, it's um, they were small but important amounts of money sometimes keeping people from literally from destitution so some people were hugely dependent on on the who got it on pension and other people literally left the country or emigrated because they didn't get the pension um, uh, other people wanted the pension for status reasons um, so the pension was an acknowledgement a state acknowledgement of their contribution mm-hmm. to the war war of independence um, so they were um, the, the pension was the only thing if you like that confirmed or proved that they had done what they had said they had done well, why were so many people left frustrated though like were the civil service trying to save money or was it because some of the veterans um, were involved in the civil yeah, war then and that uh, was partly civil servants are always trying to save money I mean, that's a universal law, I think, of, of, of civil servants in all times, in all places, um, and in all circumstances. There was another um, sort of feeling that, uh, or an attitude, um, as espoused by the, the, the first prime minister in charge of the scheme, uh, W.T. Cosgrave, who said, there will be no soft pensions. This is not money. This is not kind of money that's going to keep you, um, that's going to keep you even, or sustain you. Um, it's simply an acknowledgement. Now, in terms of of the um, the people who didn't get it, the verification procedures were incredibly rigid, so that um, you had to give a verifying account from your commanding officer, for example, um, that you were at the place you said you were, that you that this ambush or event or engagement or whatever took place, and that your commanding officer can verify it, and that there's two at least you know a number of witnesses also in your in your company that can um, substantiate your claim. So you just imagine years after the event, particularly for the um, anti-treaty people who were only eligible to apply in the 30s, um, or the 40s rather, they, they were years away from some of them 16, 17, 20 years even away from the events that they're describing. So two things can have happened. Their memory can have, can have be faulty at that stage because who remembers with that degree of precision something that happened 20 years ago? And also, often the people who they needed to verify their accounts are dead. So that was definitely one issue um, with, the, with, the, with the system. Um, that they couldn't always verify um, their, uh, you know, th- th- their service. Another issue the documentary explored was discrimination on the basis of gender. How there were uh, women who served in the struggle for independence uh, weren't recognised by this scheme. Uh, like, like, what what was going on there? Oh, um, that was a strange um, aspect to the first. Um, the first slew of pensions. The first lot of pensions, the first pension legislation was enacted in 1924 and it gave pensions to only really one class of person and that was pro-treaty men who had fought, i.e. held a gun or shot a gun or been engaged in military engagements in the War of Independence, the, um, in the 1916 the War of Independence and the Civil War. Um, anti-treaty activists were excluded as were women. Women were not deemed in, in that first um, uh, legislation to be, uh, they weren't deemed to be soldiers because they hadn't so so to speak held a gun or fired a gun 
Uh, even though they were doing now, all, dangerous things. All armies in the world um, allow for the purposes of pension. Other grades, like couriers, dispatch riders, medical order, orderlies, they're all regarded as combat personnel for the purpose of pension. So why they were excluded, I, I, I don't know. I know why the irregulars were excluded, because they were regarded basically as anti, anti-free state, um, if you like, a threat to the state, uh, subversive. Um, but when de Valera's government was elected in 1932, the first, actually, the first thing he did was enact another stream of legislation which brought in women and made them eligible and recognised their work um, as, it, as it should have been, and then brought in the anti-treaty people uh, of whom he was, um, he had been, in fact, the uh, leader of. So um, the, the, the those two excluded. Um, uh, participants were were brought in um, in the second lot of legislation, but uh, but it didn't really matter either the first lot or the second lot. The verification procedures were as difficult for both um, for, under both streams of legislation. So the, the same um, percentage of failed applications probably pre- uh, applies to the second legislation, even more so because of the time lapse involved. Well, uh, De Valera's record on women's rights is a long conversation. Um, but in, in terms of the documentary, you did find interviews with people like Mankin Megon, Lisa Mulcahy, pe- people who had people who were descendants or relatives of these veterans. Uh, so like, how did you go about uh, finding these interviews? Because they really make the story hit home in terms of their like knock on effect and uh, modern relevance. Yeah, well. Because um, there were two things that struck me. One was that the pension files lasted for the life of the person who got the pension. So some of the files don't close. They close when the person dies, and these people were still dying, like, at the end of the 20th century. So they're very, very long files. And um, that, that was number one. And so you could follow not just their lives, but the lives of their families, their children, um, and... Um, that. And also, we we wanted, if you like, now you picked up Lisa Mulcahy there, her grandfather and her grandmother were both involved, and um, they were high-profile um, activists, um, and well-known. Her grandfather was a minister in the Commonwealth government, um, and the uh, and, and the commander-in-chief of the army in the in the. Um, War of Independence after Collins was executed or assassinated. So, um, they, but they're really not representative, I think, of the general run of people in the film. We wanted it to be about ordinary people. So, you, I found the grandson of, for instance, Mrs. Elizabeth Trainer. She was left with ten children. Her husband wasn't a high-profile person. He just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and be one of the last people to be executed by the British in just on the eve of the truce um, and the treaty. Um, and she had a, a terrible life in terms of a, a financial, financially constrained life after her husband was executed and had a miserable pension. And so I found her grandson um, who remembered his grandmother very, very well and had lived with her for a while and, um, and acknowledged the burden that she carried because her husband was executed. And they were the kind of things I was interested in, that the, the impact in terms of trauma on the family, after all these quite ordinary people had left their regular civilian lives, taken part in this cataclysmic um, series of wars, ending in a civil war. And um, some of them had gone back into civilian life afterwards, 
and said nothing about what they had done. So the first time their families knew anything about the kind of nitty-gritty of what their engagement and activities were was when they looked in their pension files. So um, I, I basically set about trying to find them a combination of, of ways. I went to the 1916 Relatives Organisation and put a call out there for anybody who had a relative um, who'd applied for a pension or received a pension, and I got some results from that. Um, I knew Lisa Mulcahy, actually, because she's a filmmaker, and I had worked with her in the past, and I knew her past. I knew about her. So um, that was an easy one for me. I, I knew there was an interesting story there, and I was lucky enough to know her. And then um, some of the, we called the film Keepers of the Flame, because all these people keep the memory of their relatives alive in some way. They acknowledge what they did. They're interested in their lives. They, they do a lot of, some of them are writers, some of them are filmmakers, like Mon Con McGann, for example, um, the, grand, the grandson of um, Sheila Humphreys. Um, a very high-profile Republican all her life. Um, so, and I, I knew, I knew slightly. Well, I knew Mon Con, and I knew that he was um, his basically that he he had made a film about his grandmother with his brother Ruan. So those kind of people interested me. Well, I think it's definitely a strength of the documentary that the the veterans discussed are a mix of household names and people who are overlooked. Um, but like one of the interviews you had was a big name. It was uh, President Michael D. Higgins. Um, how, how does one secure an interview with him, and what 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 did his contributions uh, bring to the documentary? Well, we knew that the president had a father and a brother who were on opposite sides in the Civil War, um, and that the brother, um, his uncle, his father's brother, and um, the president's uncle had applied for and successfully got a pension under the 1924 legislation because he um, had been in the so-called National Army. We also knew that his father, Mikey D. Higgins' father, had applied unsuccessfully for a pension um, initially and then towards the end of his shortish life, I mean, he died in his late 50s or early 60s in very miserable circumstances, very ill, very broken. He'd been... um, He'd been in a regular. That was the other thing about that. Those a lot of those activists was that their health was completely broken down um, after the civil war because they had spent so much time out of doors um, and literally at night and in wet clothes and in ditches and um, they had been shot. They'd been interned. They'd been poorly nourished. So a lot of them did not live very long lives. Ernie O'Malley's father was dead at fifty-seven, um, and that was the kind of a pattern you get um, often with people who'd been involved also in the Civil War. Anyway, I knew the president had written a very um, well-known poem called The Betrayal, which I knew about. Um, And so I just, uh, and I knew there were two pension applications there. I looked them up. I I wrote to him through his secretariat in the Oris, and he was interested. It's a a topic that interests him, and he's very interested in the commemoration side of things, how we remember how we commemorate, um, because clearly you cannot celebrate a civil war in the same way that you can, say, celebrate a war of independence. Um, and so the commemoration of the civil war is coming up, and he was interested in tackling that. And um, so I knew it would be an interesting interview, and, and we were lucky he, he granted it to us. Um, I mean, that is something else the documentary explores quite well towards the end, is how commemorations are affected by the politics of the day when they're being held. So, I mean, could you talk a bit about like that and how you think the Civil War commemorations, for example, and the centenary of independence and 
there's all that all this kind of stuff coming up and like how you think they might be affected and um, that's a really really interesting question and um i think the state according to to dermot i think the state is is proposing to do just a day's remembrance so we have a kind of a remembrance day of for everybody um, and then that local, I think the one thing that the, that the 2016 commemoration really brought to light was the appetite that people have for history, as in the story of their own place, their own families, um, and that there was a huge amount of activity around the local story and the family story and the personal story in Ireland during 2016. And now how that will play out in, in terms of the civil war, I don't know. Um, and you're right, um, political, the political situation affects the way we commemorate. The, when the troubles were running in the north of Ireland, the commemoration and slash celebration of 1916, the public side of that, the march down O'Connell Street, the, the Guard of Honour, the presidential salute, all of that, that all went by the wayside because it was regarded as, you know, too volatile, too sensitive. Um, and then it was reintroduced, I think, in this at the 75th anniversary in um, in 91-92. So um, I think that was when Mary Robinson was president, and she was the first president then since the trouble started to take the salute uh, and the, the have the guard of honour. So um, we're entering Brexit now again. So will there be a hard border? Will it be there crash out? Who knows what the next you know, what the next bunch of, 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 of circumstances they're going to throw up. Um, and one thing, though, I think does stand as a commemoration is the archive itself, because there you have the accounts of the people written the letters to the pension boards in their own hand, talking about themselves, their lives, their experiences, their attitudes, their hopes and aspirations for the country. And it's all in there in that archive. And that is a kind of a memorial, um, a living memorial, if you like, accessible to the entire country. So um, that's something that wasn't there before. And even though it's not intended to be any kind of a commemoration or memorial, I think it will be, you know, um, and um, the perspective of 100 years will help, I think. I hope it will, even though 100 years in, in Irish memory is not that long, really. You know? It's definitely an important issue to make a documentary about. Um, I, I just wanted to finish up on two technical questions. Um, like one is about um, how, how does one go about writing a documentary? Is it about structuring the flow of the story, or that, that like how how do you sort of get get a shape and structure on a, a topic like this that affects thousands of people and a uh, hundred years of history? Um, I think that in uh, Dermot is a very much bottom-up historian and has always worked with archive and memoir and biography, autobiography and the accounts of, of you know, institutional accounts of events and so on. And so you build up a picture of the experience of those times. And I think we were very, very much um, interested in that look at so that there were, there's no voice of God as we call it you know saying this happened then other than just to say the pension scheme happened then um, and was established at such and such a time but there's very little interview with talking heads or with experts so um, we took we took that view um, and also that 
the pension file, Dermot very much had the notion and the, the, the sense of it that it was a chronicle of disappointment in one way because all these people didn't get it and buried in that disappointment is a disappointment in the Republic itself. It, what had they fought for? Why were they being treated like this? Um, what did it now say about um, the new state? And those questions are very interesting and we wanted to tease those out. So they were the overarching themes. And the other big one you've already mentioned is how do we remember and how it's so contingent on contemporary circumstances and to bring that point home so that, you know, we're not out of the woods yet with this one. Um, it's still going on and this film is only the way it is you know, the year we filmed it, if you like. So when you're finalising the structure of the film, uh, how do you find the visual language of the film? Because it struck me that early on there's a lot of quite abstract imagery of nature and then towards the end archive footage comes into it more. So could you talk a bit about how you match visuals to the words that are being spoken? And... That, it, that was the most challenging um, aspect of it for me, I think, because it's about um, memory and remembering. As you know yourself, it's an internal... Um, aside from state commemoration, which is the, the public remembering, but people's private or personal remembering is a mood thing, you know, and it's often mm. evoked by the places where the events happened. So I was very lucky, for instance, I found um, Sean Tracy's mother's house. Um, nobody knew it was there, really, until people started going looking for it. And um, I was able to film there, and it perfectly matched the mood of the of the file of Mrs. Tracy, you know, which was melancholy, which was disappointed, which was grief-stricken. She was a, a widow with only one child. That child was her son, Sean Tracy. He'd be, he was killed in an ambush in Talbot Street. So, um, so some of those scenes in Dublin were the actual the actual house that the letter was written from, the first application, and um, the address that the person lived at. And I kind of worked up from there um, and tried to create a mood. And then the other thing I did was I used the letters themselves because I was very keen to bring out the voices of the letter writers. And so that was pure mood um, and the archive itself because the letters and the handwriting um, were to me very beautiful objects to look at in themselves because so few people really spend any amount of time writing letters nowadays. Um, and these people wrote letters of four, five, six, seven, ten pages long in handwriting that they had learned in school, often very beautiful handwriting, often in ink and pen, you know. So um, I wanted to feature that and I wanted to make, and I call him Makanumra, who did the music a soundtrack for us. I think he was very sympathetic to that mood and atmosphere, and I think he did a, he did a lot of work um, to bring that out in 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 the moodiness of it. Um, um, so that that's really I I kind of felt my way through that I suppose. Well, like it all results in a strong cinematic sensibility for an important topics. So uh, we appreciate you talking to Film Ireland. Uh, thank you for joining us, Neil O'Connor. Thank you very much for asking me, Jonathan. Thank you.